Welcome back to Doc Tell Me More, a documentary, or not a documentary, a podcast where we take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I'm your host, and thank you so much for tuning in as we continue through looking at The Last Dance, in this case, episode three of The Last Dance. So, hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast uh, so far over the last two episodes. In this episode... We are going to look at kind of the late 80s Bulls. Uh, they have started to acquire their pieces to start to contend for titles. And look at uh, that road they had to climb to go from young team with promise to championship team in the 90s. And so we're going to look at the Bulls through the 80, 1987 through 1990 seasons. We're going to also take a look at Prime MJ or Michael Jordan's Prime and compare him to some of the other legends of the game. We're going to look at uh, one of his big moments and one of the Bulls' big moments is uh, when they beat the Cleveland Cavs in the playoffs and his famous shot, as well as the bad boy Detroit Pistons, one of the more underrated great teams in the history of the NBA and a team that also kept Michael Jordan from winning titles until the 90s. And then we'll take a, a look at uh, about month two of the 1997-98 season when the Bulls are starting to turn around their season after their slow start. A lot due to the play of Dennis Rodman. And we're also taking an in-depth look at Dennis Rodman and his career, his upbringing, and his player profile. So sit back and relax as, again, this is Doc Tell Me More, the third episode of The Last Dance. We're going to start off and talk about what I call prime MJ. So MJ's prime years. And right in the 19, late 80s, um, this is where a lot of people consider Jordan's prime years or even Jordan's best years. Now, certainly he had a great career from when he came into the league in 1984 all the way till he retired as a bull. And even his years with the Washington Wizards were, were pretty good, but... If you look at just some of his best seasons, um, those happen right here at this time uh, from about 1987 to 1991. So I just want to take a little bit of time and we're going to look at some kind of some numbers and some statistics to look at how good Jordan was. And then I want to compare him to a number of legends of the game just to just to see how they stack up. And we're not really I'm not really doing this to say uh, MJ is better than so-and-so, although again, I do think he is the greatest player of all time, full disclosure, but I just want to, just just for fun, compare some of the great players in the game. And so, it was kind of tough to pick the exact five-year stretch where uh, Michael Jordan uh, had his five best seasons, because there's so many seasons to choose from, uh, but what I did was I looked at a stat called win shares, which is a, an advanced uh, stat that's come around recently. And that stat looks at how many wins, essentially, a player adds to their team. There's offensive win shares, there's defensive win shares. And when they combine, uh, you get your total amount of win shares. And so what I did was I looked at Michael Jordan's uh, stats and... I looked at when he had his highest five-year stretch of win shares, and I, I did the exact same thing for these other players. And so that 
Jordan's best five years coincided with from the 1987 to 1991 season. And over the course of those five years, he averaged 33.9 points a game. And his best years when he averaged 37 points in 1987. But he also came back and averaged six and a third rebounds a game. Almost three steals a game. That's pretty good for a guard. He had uh, six... What is that? six assists? Couldn't read my own handwriting. Uh, about one block a game, and he had about 97 win shares during that time. Uh, he at one point was uh, he's a two-time MVP during this time. He was an NBA Finals MVP. He was an All-Star Game MVP, and he was also Defensive Player of the Year. So just some really crazy stats. Also five-time scoring champ during this time. Two-time steal champ. And I think maybe his best stat, he only missed one game during these five years. And that, that's just incredible. I think part of that is Jordan's freak athletic ability. He just didn't suffer any major injuries outside of his second year in the league. But uh, also his competitiveness and work ethic and his drive that kept him from missing games. So I mentioned he was a defensive player of the year. That was in 1988. And I think that's something that... Uh, is just really under underrated that people forget about how great of a, a defensive player he is. Like a good example of that thinking is when talking about LeBron James, who I think is a phenomenal player and one he's certainly in my opinion in the top five. Um, but LeBron James has never been you know, defensive player of the year, and Michael Jordan actually. Uh, LeBron and LeBron's been on six all defensive teams. Okay, pretty good for a player. Well, Michael Jordan again was a defensive player of the year, and he's been on nine all defensive teams. And so my point is with that stat again is not to knock LeBron James. My point is is that a lot of people when they're trying to put LeBron ahead of MJ, they say that's because of his defense. LeBron's a better defensive player. I think people completely forget how great of a defensive player Jordan was. So, uh, so again, those are his stats. Really, at his peak, was accomplished again over 30, almost 34 points a game, but still dishing out a lot of assists, a lot of rebounds, uh, and also winning MVP awards. Uh, so let's just transition to LeBron James. Uh, looking at his years, his peak uh, was from 2009 through 2013, and this coincides with his end of his first tenure in Cleveland and the beginning of his first couple years in Miami. So in that five-year stretch, he had 88 win shares, so about 10 less than MJ, averaged 27 points a game, had seven rebounds, 1.7 steals, seven assists, and about 0.9 blocks. So comparing the two, LeBron and Jordan, Jordan scored more points, got more steals, had more blocks, LeBron would dish out about one more assist and a little bit over one more rebound a game. Uh, Four-time MVP during the stretch. Pretty impressive. And a two-times finals MVP. MVP. So LeBron James, certainly a great player in his own right. Uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, the late, great Kobe Bryant uh, played his entire career for the Lakers and was the player most often compared to as the next Michael Jordan. And, and they're pretty similar players in terms of playing the same position. Again, LeBron is a little bit of a different player than Michael Jordan, uh, a little bit more of a, a facilitator. 
but Kobe essentially plays the same position. Kobe's stats kind of surprised me a little bit. So in those in that five-year peak from 06 to 10, only had 64 win shares. So again, about 30 less than Michael, uh, about 25 less than LeBron. He's an MVP during this time, two-time finals MVP, two-time all-star MVP too. Uh, averaged almost 30 points a game, five and a half rebounds, one and a half steals, five assists, four point four blocks, not four blocks, that'd be insane. Uh, looking at how do those compare to Jordan, Jordan is higher than him in every single one of those, and honestly, pretty significantly, significantly. So, uh, yeah, kind of case closed there. And actually, Kobe will be interviewed, I think it's in the next episode of Last Dance, who essentially kind of states without Jordan, there would be no Kobe, and kind of gives a little bit of nod that Jordan's the best the better player. One player that I think it's forgotten and when you're having the argument of who is the greatest player of all time is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, formerly known as Lou Alcindor, was a great college player, won three national championships at UCLA, and that was when freshmen couldn't play, uh, so he could only win three. Uh, and then went to the went to the NBA, was uh, his rookie year was in 1969 and 70. He played for the Milwaukee Bucks for six seasons. Bef uh, won an NBA championship, uh, which was Milwaukee's first and only until Milwaukee won this past year. Then he was traded to the Lakers and played next 14 years with the Lakers and was part of the Showtime Lakers, won five titles with the Lakers. But um, a guy that um, I think has a phenomenal argument and in terms of the greatest player of all time if you're looking for someone besides Jordan. So his peak was from 1970 to 74. He had 101.8 win shares, so about four more than Jordan. Average 38.5 points a game, 15.5 rebounds. So he was a center, so a big guy. Four assists, one and a half steals, and three and a half blocks. Two-time scoring champ, rookie of the year, three-time MVP, and finals MVP. So more win shares, less points. Obviously, as a big guy, he got more rebounds and more blocks. Jordan had more steals, more assists. Um, but Kareem's that guy that um, I think, without a doubt, he's in the top five. And and honestly, in my opinion, you may be looking at Jordan, LeBron, and Kareem when you're looking at great players of all time. So, um, but yeah, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, another great player whose peak. Um, Jordan's compares favorably to as well. Another kind of a throwback player is, is Bill Russell. So he played way back in the 50s and 60s for Boston Celtics. He's really known for winning 11 titles in 13 years with the Celtics, which is just never going to happen again. He was a center. Um, his peak was from 1961 to 65. 76 win shares, so pretty far behind Jordan, LeBron, and Kareem. Average only 16 points, but his main calling card was defense. Average, average 24 rebounds a game. That's just stupid. Uh, four and a half assists, and they didn't um, keep track of steals and blocks during this era, but a lot of people feel that Russell was a guy that would have just put up insane, ridiculous block numbers. Four-time MVP during this time. Uh, One-time All-Star MVP, two-time two rebounding champ. So Russell is the ultimate winner. Again, 11 championships, 
And there's a lot of people who saw him play that think he is the greatest of all time, even better than Kareem. The problem with trying to determine the argument of who's better is, again, not as much film to compare and the stats weren't. Again, they didn't keep track of every single stat, but still a great player. Uh, I got about four more players I want to talk about here. So Magic Johnson uh, is another, obviously, great player. Played for the LA Lakers uh, with Kareem, won five titles. Um, and uh, his five-year peak was from 87 to 91, and, and he abruptly retired after 91 because of, uh, again, the, his AIDS diagnosis. Uh, but in those five years, 75 win shares. Uh, he averaged 21.6 points a game, 6.8 rebounds a game, over 12 assists. Again, he's a point guard, more of a facilitator. 1.6 steals and three blocks. Uh, led the league in assists one of those years. Three-time MVP, a finals MVP, and an all-star MVP. So comparing him to Jordan, uh, less points, about the same rebounds, way more assists. Uh, almost half as many steals a game, and significantly fewer blocks. So Jordan gets has him in almost every category. Uh, next player, uh, three more to go, and someone that people forget about is Wilt uh, Chamberlain. Uh, he played for a lot of different teams. Uh, he started in 1959, played for the Philadelphia Warriors, who moved eventually and became the San Francisco Warriors. And now the Golden State Warriors. He also played for the Philadelphia 76ers and the LA Lakers. And he just kind of put up ridiculous numbers. He was kind of a freak of nature in that era. Uh, for example, one year he averaged 50 points a game. 50 points for the season. That's just crazy. Another year he averaged 44 points a game. Scored 100 points in one game. Um, but his in his best five-year stretch, which would be from 1960 to 64, 104 win shares. So even higher than Kareem, so the most so far. Average 41 points, average 25 rebounds, and then three assists. Only one MVP because he Russell would win the other ones when Wilt played. A rookie of the year, an all-star game MVP. But um, I think of anybody that played a long time ago if that I would like to see playing now would be Wilt Chamberlain. He was a big guy that but, but could move. Again, he was a center. Uh, but 41 points a game during that five-year stretch. That, that is just unbelievable. I'd like to see what he can do in this era right now. Two more guys I want to talk about. We'll keep rolling with big men, and that's Shaquille O'Neal, the, the diesel. Uh, big Aristotle. Um, fun guy to watch. He came into the league in 1992. Um... Fun fact, I remember being in a shoe store when I was a kid. He started off, and Shaq played with the Orlando Magic his first four years. And I needed to get some new shoes, and Shaq came out with his first shoe, and I thought it looked really cool, and I wanted to get it, and my mom was going to get it, but then they didn't have my size. And um, so I almost maybe potentially became more of a Shaq fan if I would have gotten those shoes, but I didn't. Anyway, Shaq played for the Magic for four years. Took him to the NBA Finals one year. We'll talk about that in a later episode of The Last Dance. Then went and played with the Lakers for eight years before being traded in Miami. Played for four years there. Won, won a title there in Miami after winning three in L.A. Played for a few more teams in Phoenix, Cleveland, and Boston before calling it a career. Some people call him the most dominant player, potentially, or at least big man 
in the game. But his peak was from 2000 to 2004. Put up 69.9 win shares. Averaged 27 points a game, 12 rebounds, uh, 2.6 blocks, 3.3 assists. So decent assist numbers for a big guy. About half a steal. One-time scoring champ. MVP, All-Star MVP, and Finals MVP three times. So comparing that to Jordan, Jordan's a lot more win shares, more points, uh, less blocks, less rebounds, more assists, more steals. Last guy to compare is Oscar Robertson, another kind of old-school um, player, played in the 60s and 70s. Uh, was probably considered the greatest point guard in the game until Magic Johnson came around. Although there's a lot of players that, especially older players, that consider Oscar better. Oscar's famous for averaging a triple-double for this, this season, which he was the only person to do that until Russell Westbrook did that recently. Uh, he played for the Cincinnati Royals. Um, that team is currently the Sacramento Kings after they moved to Kansas City for a little bit. And then he ended his career, played his last four years in Milwaukee, played with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and that's when they won that uh, title for Milwaukee in 1970-71. Anyways, Oscar Robinson, his five-year peak from 63 to 67, 88 win shares, averaged 30.4 points a game, 8.6 rebounds, and 10.7 assists. Again, he's a point guard. So those are pretty, uh, eight rebounds for a guard, really good, so... Compare his peak to Jordan, lower points per game, but more rebounds, more assists. Again, they didn't track steals and blocks during his peak. So those eight players are generally considered in the running for greatest players of all time, along with Michael Jordan. And so I just want to kind of run through a little bit there, their peaks. If you, if you compare Jordan's numbers to the other eight, um, at minimum, he's right on par. With everybody, there's nobody's numbers that really uh, blow Michaels out of the water, and I think you can make an argument he's better than any of those players. I'll let you guys make that determination. Again, I, I think uh, you know Wilt Chamberlain and Oscar Robinson's numbers are interesting. I'd be curious to see how they played in this in this game nowadays. Uh, and then Kareem, like I said, his numbers look really impressive as well. Those are the three that I think challenged Michael the most, besides LeBron James, who is certainly up there as well. Kobe's numbers weren't, weren't as impressive as I thought they'd be, and even Shaq's as well. But, but anyways, just during this era, as we continue to talk about the Bulls going forward and, and how they started to go from a team that would lose in the first round to contending for championships, just remember, at this day and age, as great as Michael Jordan was, this was his best time. This was his prime years. Um, again, his worst year out of these five, he averaged 31 points. He had a year he averaged eight rebounds. A year he averaged eight assists. Um, just, just put up some crazy numbers. And so this is prime Michael Jordan during this time. And as he's trying to take the Chicago Bulls to the promised land. Now, obviously, having Prime MJ on your team can only take you so far. And for the Bulls to go from you know, first-round playoff losers in Jordan's first couple of seasons to contenders as the Bulls went into the late 80s and early 90s, they needed to have a good team around them. And as I mentioned last episode, uh, really the, some of the biggest moves that Jerry Krause made were to draft Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant. And as they debuted 
and became integrated into the team, they improved rapidly and the team improved rapidly. Uh, before Pippen and Grant, the two big guys uh, on the Bulls were Charles Oakley and Brad Sellers, two draft picks under Jerry Krause, two guys I've mentioned before. And Oakley was pretty good. And Oakley's last year in Chicago before he was traded for Bill Cartwright, which again, I detailed the last episode. He averaged 13 points and 13 rebounds. That's pretty good. Uh, and he ended up becoming a pretty good player all the way throughout the 90s. Uh, Brad Sellers was not really a great pick. He was a bust. Uh, he averaged 10 points and 3 rebounds in 1988. Well, when Pippen and Grant took over in 89, Pippen averaged 15 points, 7 rebounds, and almost 3 steals. So he was able to completely replicate Charles Oakley, as well as uh, kind of bring in another uh, playmaking skill like steals. Well, Horace Grant was able to get 13 points a game and 8 rebounds a game, so really outpacing Brad uh, Sellers. And so, by 1989, uh, the, the starters on the Bulls were Bill Cartwright, Horace Grant, Scottie Pippen, Jordan, and then John Paxson. And these ended up becoming the starters for the three-peat team, uh, with the exception of, of B.J. Armstrong, who um, we'll mention later and was drafted. But essentially, by 89... The Bulls championship lineup was in place, and that allowed them to just uh, to get out of the first round and allowed them to ascend. But as they were ascending to try to become the best team in the East, or at least get out of the first round, they ended up running up against another team in the East that was trying to um, stamp their case as champions, and that was actually the Cleveland Cavaliers. And really, if you think of the Cleveland Cavaliers now, most people think about LeBron James, and rightfully so. But there was a time in the late 80s, early 90s, when the Cavs were a really good team and maybe considered even um, the next best team in the East. Now, the Cavs have been really terrible in the early 1980s. They actually bottomed out with a 15-67 and 67 record in 1981 and 82. And that's including Chuck Daly... Um, coaching them in, in, uh, for part of that season and winning nine games and going nine and thirty-two. And Chuck Daly, I'm going to talk about later in this episode of how great of a coach he was. So, uh, if Chuck Daly couldn't be successful at Cleveland in that year, that shows you how how little talent they had. They only had one playoffs from 1979 to 87, and that's when they lost in the first round, 85. So they were just a really bad team for a while. But then they started to build through the draft, and there was really two main drafts in 1985 and 86 that started to lay the foundation for some great Cavs teams. Uh, 1985, uh, the Cavaliers picked Hot Rod Williams, another really cool name, as a power forward. He was a second round pick. Um, he actually wouldn't play in, until 1986, but he ended up spending 13 years in the NBA Score 11 points a game, 7 rebounds a game, 71 total win shares. But then they really hit it out of the park in 1986. Now, 1986 is actually considered one of the worst drafts in NBA history. A lot of bust in that draft if you, if you go through and look at that draft. But the Cleveland Cavaliers actually killed it in that draft, which is incredible. So they had the number one pick, and they picked big man Brad Doherty. Um, out of North Carolina, who, who, interesting fact, he spent four years in college, but graduated when he was 20. 
he he would end up playing eight years in Cleveland, uh, averaged 19 points, nine and a half rebounds a game, and was a five-time All-Star. And he was a center, so a nice center for the Cavs. The Cavs also the eighth pick in the 86 draft, and they would pick shooting guard Ron Harper. So uh, really good player. I'm going to do a little bit of a bio on him later on in this episode. Uh, he would play 16 years in the NBA, 14 points a game, four rebounds, four assists a game. Um, and he was part of the Chicago Bulls, actually second three-peat. And then their third pick um, that they had in that 1986 draft, they picked Mark Price in the second round. Very underrated shooter in NBA history. Really, really consistent. 90% free throw shooter, 40% three-point shooter, which is elite. Especially back then when not that many people shot uh, the three-pointer. He'd spent 12 years in the NBA, 15 points, 7 assists a game, 71 win shares. And four All-Star appearances. So, uh, so all of a sudden, after just two drafts, you had a nice uh, nucleus around them. And actually, three players from the Cavs would be on the All-Rookie team. And there was only five spots in the All-Rookie team in 1986-87. That was Hot Rod Williams, Brad Doherty, and Ron Harper. Um, they made a couple other nice moves. Uh, one was to trade for Larry Nance, a power forward from Phoenix. Larry Nance played 14 years in the NBA, 17 points, 8 rebounds a game, 110 win shares, 3-time All-Star. And then finally, Craig Elo was a, a nice player for them. He was actually signed as a free agent after he was cut by Houston. He ended up spending 14 years in the NBA. Uh, and so he had this nice nucleus of young players. They would win 42 games in 1988, which was their most in 10 years. Then they'd win 57 in 1989, which was their franchise record until 2009 when, when LeBron was at his peak there in his first stint in Cleveland. Now, Magic Johnson actually predicted that the Cavs would be the team of the 90s. Think about that for a second, looking back at what we know right now of what happened in the 90s and really how bad the Cavaliers have been outside of LeBron James. Magic Johnson predicted the Cavs would be the team winning championships in the 90s. So you have this team in Cleveland ascending with their young talent as the Bulls are ascending with their young talent. Again, Michael Jordan, Horace Grant, Scottie Pippen, Bill Cartwright, John Paxson. And so then these two teams end up colliding in two consecutive playoff battles in 1988 and 1989. Two really good close battles. Um, for the right to to contend for the Eastern Conference Championship, so 1988, uh, and they they both these teams met in the first round. The Bulls were the three seed, and the Cavs were the six seed. Really back and forth, close series. Uh, largest margin of victory was 11. Otherwise, the rest were single digits. Interestingly enough, the, the home team won every game. MJ went absolutely off in this series. He averaged, I said, averaged 45 points a game. He went 50, 55, 38, 44, and 39 in five games. This was a best of best of five at the time. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. Uh, so it came down to game five in Chicago, and Cleveland actually took a 12-point lead after the first quarter. And then Chicago would slowly chip away. They'd go into the fourth quarter up by three, then they'd win by six. 
Um, and that would they'd end up clinching the series, winning five, three games to do to to move on. Uh, Charles Oakley, so Oakley was still on the team in '88. Remember, he'd get traded after the season. Um, he averaged 11 points, 13 rebounds, but Pippen and would go 11 and five. Horse would go nine and eight. So these two guys and their performance this season really led to Oakley getting shipped away. Mark Price had a great series, 21 points a game. Larry Nance, 17 points, seven rebounds. Doherty were 16 and nine. So really good series with two young teams battling it out. And then the next year, 1989, um, they were the three and six seeds again, but it was flipped. This time the Cavs were the three seed. Bulls were the sixth seed. The Cavs were the heavy favorite in this series. They'd beaten the Bulls six times during the season, including the last game of the season where the Cavs didn't play any of their good starters. Um, they played their subs, and the Bulls played their starters, and the Bulls still lost. Um, what's very interesting about this team is that the Cavs were the best team in the league for most of that season. They were 42-12. and 12 after 54 games and the number one seed um, they had a big injury there that happened and Mark Price was they were playing the Pistons uh, went around a screen and took an elbow or forearm to the head got a concussion there and um, it took him a while to recover and the Cavs really faded so they went from 42 and 12 to 57 and 25 so after losing just 12 games in their first 54 games, they ended up going 15 and 13, pretty much a 500 team uh, towards the end. And this was significant because they went from the number one seed to the number three seed. The Pistons took the number one seed, and they were even though they had actually the second best record in the NBA, but back then you had two divisions in the NBA, and each division win the division winners were one and two. And so um, the Cavs were in the same division as the Pistons. And so the Pistons ended up getting the one seed. The Knicks, who won the other division, were the two seed. So the Cavs got the three seed, and, and that was tough because they get matched up with the Bulls and Michael Jordan. Bulls were struggling. They had uh, lost eight out of their last ten games. What was interesting about this Bulls team is that they actually moved Michael Jordan to point guard two-thirds of the way through the season when he normally been playing shooting guard. And this would be a pretty common move now where the theory behind that is you give your best player the ball instead of waiting it to just kind of pass in the ball, let him start with the ball. And it actually worked out to be a really great move. They won 11 of 14 games after that happened. Michael Jordan actually had seven triple doubles in a row. In 11 and 15 games, the Bulls scored... 100-plus points in 16 straight games. Clyde Drexler, Drexler actually said that Michael Jordan handled the ball better than Magic Johnson. And so that worked. Um, that actually, they ended up actually nixing that after the season. They felt, and Michael felt too, that it was just too much strain on him to do that. And they ended up eventually inserting John Paxton in the starting lineup and actually then drafted B.J. Armstrong in the offseason as well. But Michael Jordan's actually point guard this season. So, again, another really good game. Um, you know, in 88, the home team won every game. In this series, they alternated victories in the first four games. And every game, again, single digits. So, close game. Uh, game four, 
was uh, kind of a footnote looking back on it, but Bulls are up two games to one, and Michael Jordan had a chance to win the game or ice the game with a free throw in the last minute, and he misses a free throw that would have won game four. The game went into overtime, and he actually said that was the second biggest, uh, missing that free throw and losing the game for his team was the second biggest pain or the most Second most painful experience he had in his pro career, um, which is really incredible. Actually, in his entire career, his first biggest pain, well, first biggest pain, that doesn't sound great, but his, his most disappointing moment in his basketball career was getting cut from the high school team. Number two is missing that free throw. So they miss that free throw. They go to game five. And again, remember the Cavs were the favorite. They were the better team most of the year. So you get a chance to to close out and you miss it. And usually that doesn't bode well for that deciding game. But, but game five was just a classic game. There were six lead changes in the final minute. MJ hit a shot with six seconds to go to give the Bulls a one-point lead. Craig Elo, who ended up having a phenomenal game, would score 24 points in this game. I think 15 in the fourth quarter, I think. But he ends up making a bucket with three seconds to go to give the Cavs a one-point lead. And so uh, the Elo is going to look like the hero for the Cavs at this point. And the Bulls call a timeout. The coach, Doug Collins, actually draws a play for their center, Dave Corzine, because he's thinking at this point that Michael is going to be a decoy. The, the Cavs won't expect Corzine to take the shot. Michael Jordan said, give me the effing ball, which honestly I would do. Uh, and so Doug redrew the play for that. Now, Ron Harper um, claimed and claimed in the Last Dance documentary that he asked to guard Michael Jordan. And instead, they let Craig Elo guard him. And actually, and so, and this is that was actually a smart move because Craig Elo had guarded Jordan um, all game and had limited him to like one out of six from uh, contested shots. So Elo had actually um, played Jordan well, but Harper claims that he um, wanted to and, and, and was better, excuse me, would have been the better defender on Jordan. To this day, Craig Elo and Mark Price dispute that Ron Harper ever said that. Um. And what's interesting is that in game one, uh, Jordan put 50 on uh, uh, on Elo. Uh, well, actually, he did that in the, in, the, in the year before, put 50 on him. And Harper actually said after game one that Jordan would never put 50 on him. Well, then in game two, Harper guarded Jordan, and Jordan put 55 on Ron Harper. So, you know, Harper's got a little bit of an ego there, and I think all players do. But anyways, Ron Harper claimed that he wanted to guard Jordan. Elo guards him. And what happens is, is that Michael Jordan hits one of the all-time classic buzzer beaters over Craig Elo. And if you watch the video, it's, it's really a great effort by Elo. It's just an even more incredible shot by Michael Jordan to win the game. And that ended up being the first buzzer beater in a winner-take-all game in NBA playoff history. And the second one happened in 2019, so it hasn't happened that many times. And so the Bulls end up winning that game 
beating the Cavaliers, moving on to the next round again. So two years in a row, these two young teams face off. Bulls win both in um, the winner-take-all games um, in classic series. Jordan scored 40 points um, a game, averaged eight assists. Again, he was point guard. Six rebounds a game, three steals a game, just did everything. Pippen had 15 points, nine rebounds, four assists. Horace Grant was 10 points and 13 rebounds. Ron Harper did have a great series. Average 19 points. Larry Nance, 19 and 8. Brad Doherty. Doherty. Yeah, there you go. Doherty. Sorry, Brad, if you're listening. Uh, 11 and 9. And so, Bulls move on to the next round. Heartbreak again for the Cavs. And there's actually kind of a myth that that shot, it is called the shot, um, killed the Cavs. And that's really not true. The, the Cavs actually make the playoffs seven of the next nine years. They actually make the 1992 Eastern Conference Finals where they would lose to the Bulls. <laughs> and then they were terrible after that until they got LeBron. But um, they didn't die. They, they continued to be a good team that they just couldn't get past the Bulls when they needed to. This was just huge for the Bulls. It gave them the confidence that they could be a winning team. You know, up until these two series in 88 and 89, they had been losing in the first round. Uh, and so it gave them confidence to be winners. It showed MJ could could win and lead a team. But also so the Bulls weren't just a one-man team. They had players now to contend. And so they were able to get past the Bulls. Um, but unfortunately for them, there was one more team to go get. And so in 88, after they... Uh, after they won this game, they ended up going uh, on to the conference finals to play Detroit. The next year in 89, after they beat the Cavs, they end up upsetting the Knicks. They go to the conference finals to face Detroit. And then in 1990, in the playoffs, they, they easily dispatched the Bucks and Pistons to go to the conference finals against Detroit. And so now the Bulls have vanquished one team. But now another team stands in their way, and that is the Detroit Pistons. And and these three conference finals end up really shaping um, the future of the NBA. But before we get into those conference finals and the Bulls battle with the Pistons, I do want to take some time to talk about Ron Harper as my as our bio of this this episode. Or one of the bios, actually. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to talk about one or two players from the 1998 Chicago Bulls team. And we spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the, maybe the unknown role players. This episode, I'm talking about Ron Harper. I'm talking about him because I think his history fits in really well with this episode. Again, he is part of those Cleveland Cavs teams that couldn't get past the early incarnation of the Bulls. But Ron Harper would play a huge part in a second Bulls 3P. Now, Ron Harper had a lot in common with Michael Jordan that he was cut from his high school volleyball, volleyball basketball team as a freshman. Actually, didn't even play as a sophomore. He ended up playing as a junior and senior and, and played at Miami of Ohio basketball. He is still their all-time leading scorer and rebounder. He was actually the first men's MAC player. That's the conference they played in to score 2,000 points and then to grab 1,000 rebounds. As I mentioned, he was drafted by Cleveland was traded to the Clippers in 89. In 94, he signed as a free agent with the Bulls right after MJ had retired to play baseball. He actually would then finish his career with the Lakers, signing with them in 99. 
Now, he was primarily an offensive player early on in his career, but then when he went to the Bulls, he ended up kind of reinventing himself as a really good perimeter defender. And that's shown by his first three seasons with the Cavs. He averaged 19 points. In the Bulls years, he averaged 7.7 points. But he was an integral part of the Bulls. He would play 350 games for the Bulls, start 324 of them. And again, he, he would actually end up winning five titles. So he won three titles with the Bulls. He would win two more with the Lakers in 2000-2001. Uh, and he's one of those few players that played with both Mike and with Kobe Bryant. And so the common question is that, uh, who was better? Uh, and he said they're both good, but he said Michael Jordan was better. Period. End of story. Uh, so I found that interesting. Um, Jordan did say that Harper is one of the guys that gave him the toughest battle on defense. And so good, solid career for Ron Harper. Not quite enough to be in the Hall of Fame, but a guy that played a lot of years in the NBA, averaged almost 14 points for his career, four rebounds, almost four assists, and had 66 win shares, but a five-time champion. So the Bulls vanquished Ron Harper and the Cavs in the 80s, and now they move on to an even tougher test as they're trying to ascend to become the first team to win a championship built around a guard and not a center. But this time they have to face the great Detroit Pistons of the 1980s. All right, so the Bulls seem primed to ascend and take over the, th the, the throne here in the NBA in the late 80s. They have had Michael Jordan in his prime. They've had some playoff success against the Cavs. They have a, a good, well-rounded, or at least a good, talented team that they've added to and surrounded Jordan with other great players. And so it seems like here, as the late 80s continue on in the NBA, as the Celtics and as the Lakers get older, that the Bulls are ready to take the crown as the next dynasty. MJ takes to take the crown as the next great player in the NBA. However, there's one team that rose up to challenge them for this supremacy um, in the NBA. And that is the Detroit Pistons. And as both of these teams are ascending at the same time, it led to an incredible rivalry between the Chicago Bulls and the Detroit Pistons from 1988 to 1991. And I really want to take some time to not only talk about this rivalry, but also talk about this Detroit Pistons team. Because these, this Detroit Pistons team is really one of the greatest teams of all time, but really, really underrated. And have one of the coolest nicknames. They were the Bad Boys, is what their nickname was. And um, despite their success uh, and their greatness, they really are not well-liked. And or not really given their due. And so before we get into um, the Bulls and the Pistons and how they clashed for four straight postseasons here in the late 80s, early 90s, I want to take some time to give some credit and talk about the Detroit Pistons and how they rose and came to be the Bulls' primary rival in the Eastern Conference at the time MJ was um, ascending. Now, the rise of the, D the Detroit Pistons started out in the early 80s, and that coincided with the Pistons just being absolutely terrible. 
<laughs> the Pistons were one of the worst teams in the 70s and 80s. And, and over like a, uh, a two-year span, they won a total of 37 games. So they were so bad that they were able to get the number two pick in the 1981 draft. And this is when their fortunes really turned. And uh, the architect of this team, Jack McCloskey, their GM, was a World War II vet. Um, as he looked to determine who he wanted to draft and build this Pistons franchise around, he zeroed in on Indiana guard Isaiah Thomas, who had just led the Hoosiers to uh, two Big Ten titles and the 1981 NCAA championship where he was named the most outstanding player. And he was just a sophomore. It was really rare for sophomores to, to leave and declare for the NBA. Man, Magic Johnson had done that the year before. Isaiah does it again. But it's so really rare to do that. Again, remember, MJ declared after his junior year. Uh, Isaiah Thomas did not want to go to the Pistons, though. He, uh, he's actually from Chicago. He wanted to go to the Bulls. And so he tried to sabotage his interviews, his draft interviews ahead of time, and purposely give the wrong answers so teams wouldn't draft him. Well, in the middle of his interview with the Pistons, McCloskey told him, hey, I just want you to know, I don't care what you're trying to do here. Uh, I'm going to draft you at number two. And, and he did. And, and that really changed things uh, for the Detroit Pistons. They found their, um, their leader. He was obviously really talented. I mean, right now, um, Isaiah Thomas would go on to be considered one of the great, greatest point guards of all time. A lot of people put Magic Johnson one. He's usually in that tier right below that. And actually, MJ would later say uh, in this actually Last Dance documentary that he felt Isaiah was number two. Um, he was an all-star as a rookie, which was his first of 12 straight all-star games, averaged 19 points for his career, nine assists, and almost four rebounds. So really good all-around talented player. So that is when uh, Detroit started to ascend. Uh, the second big, uh, the second big move that Jack McCloskey made for the Pistons was trading for a center named uh, Bill Lambeer. Now. He uh, had played for the Cleveland Cavaliers, but McCloskey was impressed at how he just never quit, even when his team was down by 20. Once he saw Lambeer competing in a game that hard when he's down 20, he decided to go after him. So he trades for Lambeer, and really Lambeer and Isaiah were, became the two leaders of the Pistons. Obviously, they were super talented. You know, and Bill Lambeer would go on to be a four-time All-Star uh, and a two-time rebounding champ. Uh, also shot the, the three ball really well, which is rare for his time. But those two just embodied toughness and that they hated to lose. Even though they're from different backgrounds, Isaiah was from a very poor neighborhood in the west side of Chicago. Lambeer was from a really affluent area uh, in, in Chicago. But they both just hated to lose, and that really set the tone. Uh, what also helped is that Chuck Daly was hired as head coach. Uh, he really had not had that much success before 
Uh, he'd been to the the Pistons. He coached eight years in college. He had had one season with Cleveland where he only won nine games. But McCloskey knew Chuck Daly and felt like his temperament was perfect for that team. Uh, as they rose up, they uh, would lose in the first round of the playoffs to the Knicks in 1984. To get them, it was their first playoff appearance in seven years. And they started to ascend themselves. Uh, they lost in 1985 to uh, the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference semis. Uh, as Bo- Again, as Boston was in the middle of their dynasty. And at this point, um, they continued to add more players. So they traded for Rick Mah- Mahorn. Now, Rick Mahorn was another forward. He, they traded him uh, from the Washington Bullets. He really brought some more of that toughness, uh, that attitude that Lambeer and Isaiah Thomas had. He was an all-defensive player. Now, and, and, what was interesting about him, he didn't want to go to Detroit. <laughs> he said he hated Isaiah Thomas. And so he purposely uh, showed up overweight. Um, and the Bill Lambeer pulled him aside and said, that's not how we do things with the Pistons. But also told him, hey, you have a big role for this team. And, and so he got Mahorn to believe in him. And Mahorn and Lambeer would form a really talented front court that made the, the Pistons really, uh, again, really tough defensively. The next day after they traded for Mahorn, they drafted Joe Dumars uh, in the 1985 NBA draft. Joe Dumars actually said in college he had a poster of Isaiah Thomas on his wall. So he said it was kind of interesting to, to play for him. And that was a great pick by the Pistons. He eventually would um, go into the Hall of Fame himself. Uh, he'd eventually be an NBA Finals MVP. He's a six-time All-Star, five-time All-Defensive team. Uh, 16 points per game over his career and a four and a half assist in his career. Um, and he ended up forming one of the best backcourts, not just of that era, but all time with Isaiah Thomas. It, uh, both certainly defensively, they're both the great defensive players, but also offensively. Michael Jordan actually called Joe Dumars the best defender that he ever, ever faced. Uh, um. So anyway, so they're kind of putting the pieces together. Uh, they made it back to the playoffs in 86 for the third straight year. But this time they lost in the first round to uh, Atlanta. And so they, they knew they had to continue to add more pieces. So they added, they traded for Adrian Dantley, who was a former two-time scoring champ, was a six-time All-Star for Utah. And he really added... Uh, some more scoring to the team. Joe Dumars said that he was a guy who needed a bucket. You could give him the ball. He could go one-on-one and get a bucket for the team. But also brought in um, a lot more sort of good defense, too. Uh, Vinny Johnson was a guy, um, was, a, was an important bench player for the Pistons. Uh, he could, uh, again, put some, uh, bring a lot of offense to the Pistons. He was called the Microwave, which is a really cool nickname. Um, because he, uh, Chuck Daly, their coach, said that he could heat up at any moment and give him instant offense. Uh, but what they also did was they had... So those moves really helped. But what was maybe the, the, the best move was their 1986 
um, NBA draft. So they lose in the first round to Atlanta. Then they have a phenomenal draft. In the first round, they draft John Sally, who's a power forward. Uh, he ended up being among the all-time leaders in block shots for the Pistons. But he was an, a big man. But he was a big man that could run. And which was uh, as great as Lambeer was, he couldn't quite run like John Sally. He could get up and down the court. Uh, but their big pick was in the second round where they drafted uh, Dennis Rodman. And I think we all know who Dennis Rodman is. Um, I'm going to give a, a full bio later on um, in, in a different part of this episode about Dennis Rodman. But he really came off the bench for the longest time with the Pistons, ended up becoming a starter in 1990. He was a two-time Defensive Player of the Year for the Pistons. But he could guard everybody. Uh, yeah, he could guard everybody. Uh, he just was willing to do that gritty work that some other guys might not necessarily wanted to do. But all these guys then bought into this toughness, hate to lose mentality. And this is where they started to develop the, the bad boy image. They were a very physical team. And they made a lot of hard fouls. They were very physical, um, and they did that for a lot of the mental aspect on it. And Bill Embiid talked about that a lot. If if you know that to score a bucket, um, you're going to have to probably get hit pretty hard. Um, that that's that's a little bit of a mental edge, and, and the physicality really frustrated um, a lot of players that weren't used to that. And and this was condoned in the NBA at the time. We even saw it progress into the 90s later on. It was very physical. They were really one of the first teams, maybe the first team, to adopt the full-court defense. And so before they, the Pistons really started doing full-court defense, a lot of the times defenses would go back to play half-court defense and almost really allowed the offense to get into rhythm. Uh but but they really, again they uh, they played full court defense, and um, and they, and that all just kind of played into that toughness mindset. And they were going to be rough. They were going to get fouls. Uh, Rick Mahorn and some of the other Pistons players said, "Hey, if you're going to get called for a foul, get called for a foul," you know. And you know it if. If, if you're going to foul the guy, you might as well foul him hard. And that's what they did. And the NBA at the time didn't really have uh, the flagrant foul rules now that they did. And so you could give some pretty hard fouls, and they'd just be normal fouls. And Rick Mahorn would say, uh, and they, they do that a lot, and he said he his analogy he used was like speeding. Like everybody speeds, everybody goes 5 or 10 miles over, you might get caught sometimes speeding, but most of the time you're not going to get caught. And so that was, that was their mentality. Yeah, they're going to be physical. They're going to give hard fouls. Every now and then, they might get called for a few of them, or a few too many of them, or some hard fouls or good ejections. But most of the time, they weren't. So they were going to keep doing it. Um, and so they got the bad boys um, nickname from the person who edited their 1987-88 highlight video that they called them the bad boys. And the team really embraced it. And they also embraced it because 
the NBA love the Lakers. They love the Celtics. Those are the two premier teams. And as the Bulls are rising too, they were seen as the, the next team to pass the torch to. And so people really didn't want the Pistons to win outside of Detroit. And so people actively rooted against them. And so the Pistons really embraced that, whole, hey, we're the bad guys. Uh, Lambeer said, somebody's got to wear the black hat. And so they embraced that role. The Oakland Raiders owner, Al Davis, who was, his Raiders were considered kind of the renegade bad boys. They actually sent them Raiders gear uh, to uh, kind of embrace that black and silver uh, bad guys image. Uh, so, so as as they developed, they developed a really good team. They took on this persona as the bad guys, and they played into it. And that kind of went into their defense as well. Rough, physical, hard contact. You got to fight for every point. Great defense. So, with all these players in place, they were able to make the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics. And if you remember, uh, from one of my earlier episodes, the 80. Six Pistons, are, or excuse me, 86 Celtics are considered one of the greatest teams of all time. So 87 was the year after that, and the, Pist- or the Celtics were still a really good team. Uh, the Celtics ended up winning the first two games, but the Pistons came back to uh, tie the game at a, a tie the series, excuse me, at two. And this was, and this series really exposed. A lot of the national audience to how physical the Pistons were. Uh, Lambeer ended up, oh, causing a fight with Larry Bird after some of his hard fouls. And that physical contact uh, was really seen on a national level. The Pistons were poised to win game five at the Boston Garden. And that was huge because they were going to go to play game six at home. Uh, and they had a lead with like five seconds left and the ball. And at that moment, uh, Isaiah Thomas went to inbound the ball, made a poor pass, and, and Larry Bird actually stole it and passed it to uh, Dennis Johnson, and the Celtics were able to win the game, make a bucket with a second to go. So the Pistons ended up choking game five away, and they would, they would win game six in Detroit, but then they lose game seven. And so a lot of people think that the Pistons were actually the better team there in 1987. Over the, uh, over the, excuse me, over the, um, over the Celtics, they just kind of gave it away. But the Celtics would go on actually lose in the finals to the Lakers, and so they then came back and, in 1988. Uh, expectations that they could be one of the the favorites to win the NBA title. And they make the playoffs again. And in the Eastern Conference semis, they play the Chicago Bulls. Uh, now, Isaiah ended up, um, you know, Jordan didn't like the Pistons, but Isaiah had a huge problem with MJ's success because, as I said, Isaiah was from Chicago. He was really popular in Chicago even when he was drafted by Detroit. But once MJ started to uh, ascend and take over Chicago, people started for cheer, cheer for MJ and people would start to boo Isaiah. So he took that the wrong way and he even got to the point where actually Isaiah's nephew um, or 
was wearing an MJ jersey, and Thomas saw that and didn't like it. So Isaiah didn't like the Bulls either because Michael was become more popular in Chicago. And so 1988 would be the first of four years where the the Pistons and Bulls would play each other. And so in, in that series, the the Pistons would uh, they did split the first two games, and then Detroit would win the rest. And it really wasn't a close series. The Pistons won in five games. Uh, MJ had a great series, averaged 27 points a game, almost nine rebounds, five assists, and two steals. Charles Oakley was still on the team that year. He averaged nine and 12. But Isaiah averaged 20 points and 10 assists. Lambeer averaged 16 points and 13 rebounds. And Adrian Dantley averaged uh, 19 points for uh, the Pistons. The Pistons would then finally beat Boston in the Eastern Conference Finals in a rematch, which ended the Boston Celtics dynasty. And they go on and face the Lakers in the 88 Finals. Uh, Game 6 is uh, well known for Isaiah Thomas's NBA Finals record where in the third quarter where Isaiah sprained his ankle in the third quarter uh, but then played played on that injured ankle and he scored 25 points in the third quarter which is an NBA Finals record the Pistons are up 1 in game 6 in the last minute and they had a 3 to 2 lead so if they won game 6 they would have won the NBA Finals um, at the one last plays of the games, the Lakers pass the ball to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Lambeer is controversially called for a foul on Kareem, and Kareem would make the two free throws, and the Lakers would win Game Six, and they'd finish the series in Game Seven. And so that was uh, uh, so the Pistons were like 17 seconds away from winning the '88 NBA Finals. They don't, uh, obviously. So they go into 1989 though as the favorites to win. Again, the Celtics are getting old. The Lakers are getting old. The Pistons are now the new favorites to win the NBA title. Unfortunately for them, their season started off really bad, and they had kind of a locker room tiffed with Adrian Dantley. So then Adrian Dantley ended up being traded for a guy named Mark Aguirre. Mark Aguirre is actually the number one pick in the 81 draft when Isaiah went number two. He was a three-time All-Star and he could score as well. He was a very similar to player to Dantley, but he fit better with the team. And after kind of being kind of middling and mediocre for most of the year in '89, uh, the Pistons end up going 30 and four, <laughs> 30 and four in the last 34 games to uh, get the number one seed in the playoffs. And they faced the Bulls in the 1989 Eastern Conference Finals. And while the Pistons were the favorites, the Bulls ended up going going up 2-1 to one after Game 3 when Michael Jordan hit a buzzer beater to win Game 3. And so there's some people thinking, ooh, are the Pistons going to miss their chance? Are the Bulls going to knock off the Pistons before the Pistons win and the Bulls ascended the best team? in the league. And this is where after the game, Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars really spent a lot of time after the game thinking, how can they beat Jordan? And this is where 
they really implemented what were called the Jordan Rules, which are essentially specific rules to stop Jordan. Because the thought was, if you can stop MJ, the rest of the team's not good enough to beat the Pistons. So the Jordan Rules, uh, in a broad sense, were essentially the Bulls, or excuse me, the Pistons going to be really physical with Michael Jordan um, to wear him out. But it wasn't just about beating him up. There were a few other concepts to it. Um, what they they did was that if Jordan was on the wing, they would try to push him to the elbows and not allow him to drive to the baseline. If they could, they'd want to influence him to the left. They felt he was weaker there. And if he was in the low post, they would trap him. And if he got into the lane, they would they would foul him hard. Uh, Chuck Daly said we weren't trying to hurt him, but we were. I mean, we were trying to be physical with him. It wasn't dirty. Uh, they would really vary the defenses on him and really try to wear him out. And they would even when Jordan was on defense, whoever he was guarding, they would make pass so that so Jordan would be worn out by uh, having to play defense. So this worked, and after Game Three, the um, Pistons would win the last three games of the 1989 Eastern Conference Finals. They'd go up four, in four to two. They were close though; it was a lot closer series than in 1989. Uh, or excuse me, '88. Jordan started a great series; almost had 30 points, had five and a half rebounds, six and a half assists. Uh, Scottie Pippen had 10. Averaged 10 points and 7 rebounds. Horace Grant, 9 points, 9 rebounds. Again, Isaiah Thomas had a great series, 21 points a game. Aguirre, Vinnie Johnson, and Joe Dumars each averaged 13 points. And Dennis Rodman for the Pistons averaged 7 points but 13 rebounds a game. So the Pistons knock off the Bulls again. And then they get to go on to the NBA Finals. And they just dominate and they actually sweep the Lakers 4-0. So they end the LA Dynasty. They ended the Celtics dynasty a year before. They end the LA dynasty the next year. Um, unfortunately for them, after the season, Rick Mahorn was taken in the expansion draft by the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, and then they come back the next year. They're the favorite to win again. Uh, they have another great season, and they make the Eastern Conference Finals again where they get to face the Chicago Bulls again. Uh, what I thought was interesting is that the home teams won every game uh, in that series. So it ended up going to Game 7, which was in Detroit. And this is the game where Scottie Pippen had a migraine during the game. And migraines are more than just headaches. It's where blurred vision, you can't see. And so that really did hamper the Bulls, and Game 7 ended up being not close at all. So the Pistons really destroyed the Bulls there in that Game 7, and they get to go to their third straight NBA Finals. MJ, another great series, 32 points a game, 7 rebounds, 6 assists. Scotty averaged 16 points a game, 16.5. Horace Grant, 11 points, 11 rebounds. Dumars had a great series, 20 points a game. Isaiah had 17. 18.5 points, 6 rebounds, 8 assists, and 3 steals. Rodman had 9 points and 10 rebounds a game. Mark Aguirre, 12 points and 6 rebounds. And so, really a great series. And then the Pistons would go on and win uh, in 5 games in, in the NBA Finals and beat the Trailblazers. So the Pistons would become one of the few franchises that would go back-to-back -back 
What I find interesting in those two years is that their toughest competition in the playoffs were the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. They only lost one game combined in those two NBA Finals. But in the Eastern Conference Finals, they were pushed to six games and seven games. And so, if the Pistons weren't there in 89 and 90, the Bulls probably go on and win two titles there. Which is interesting to me because we all know later on that Michael Jordan gets burnt out and retires after his first three-peat. The question is, would that have happened again? Would he have retired after a three-peat earlier? Would he have kept playing for a few more years and tried to win four or five? Who knows? But... The Detroit Pistons definitely kept Jordan from winning a couple titles. Uh, 1991, that would change. Uh, which, I'm actually going to save that for next episode, what happened in the 1991. They would face one more time against the Bulls in the 1991 Eastern Conference uh, Finals. Uh, but I think what is interesting, they made five straight... Conference Finals, they made three straight NBA Finals, and they won two straight titles. There's only been five other teams that have done that. You had the Minneapolis Lakers in the 40s and 50s did that. You had the Boston Celtics do that in the 50s and 60s. NBA was way different in those early eras, eras in my opinion. The Lakers in the 80s did it. The Bulls would do it in the early 80s, late 90s. And actually, Golden State would do it in 2015 through 19. But they were one of the handful of teams that were able to make that deep of a run into the NBA Finals. And really, their physical style. That really, When people talk about this team, the Detroit Pistons, really people think about how physical they were, how... How they would get into a lot of fights. They would get a lot of technical fouls. Uh, but that really overshadows really how great they were. Their 1989 team is considered one of the greatest of all time. Usually you look at ranking, it's around number 10 overall. And their 1990 team is considered anywhere between 25 or 35-ish of all time. Yes, they were a great defensive team, but they had skilled offensive players. Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, as we kind of talked about, both great offensive players as well. Adrian Dantley, Mark Aguirre could score. Vinny Johnson, I mentioned. I mentioned Bill Lambeer could hit threes. He hit six threes in an NBA Finals game, which, again, before the three-point shot really exploded in the last 10 years, that was not just great for a big guy, but anybody. So... The question is, though, why are the Pistons hated? They, if, if you talk about the Pistons to a lot of NBA people, or just the general national narrative, people talk about the Lakers and Celtics and Bulls. They don't mention the Pistons as much. Well, why don't they do that? Well, there's really two reasons, in my opinion, why people don't talk about the Pistons on the same pedestal as those other teams. Um, the NBA really didn't embrace that hard-nosed defensive style. They actually ended up changing the rules on defense, so you couldn't be as physical anymore. They added flagrant fouls. Part of that is um, is that they were probably, some people, including uh, Stephen A. Smith of ESPN, think that they are trying to appeal to the more international game at the time, which was more free-flowing. 
So the NBA didn't really like that. The NBA really wanted to highlight the Celtics in Boston and, and the Lakers and the passing of the torch to the Bulls. They didn't really want to highlight the Pistons. So the NBA didn't really embrace him. But Michael Jordan also, he um, created that narrative. He said the bad boys were bad for basketball after the, the Pistons were dethroned in 1991. And since Jordan was the most popular player at the time, the best player, people bought that. And so really because of, of those two things, uh, the, the Pistons haven't really gotten their due. Uh, on top of that, too, I mean, I mean, yes, I think that, you know, the Lakers did win five titles in the 80s. The Celtics won three. The Bulls would win six. I mean, two is still impressive. But compared to those other dynasties, it's not as much. But really the fact of the matter is when, when you think about the bad boy Pistons, what, what I w- would encourage you to think about is great team. Again, five straight conference finals, two NBA titles, almost three in a row. Um, great team, great dynasty in their own right. But also, they were the team that kept Michael Jordan from ascending to the throne. And a lot of people, including MJ included, did say, though, that because that was such a huge hurdle to clear, and they had to prepare themselves physically and mentally to overcome that hurdle, that allowed them then in the 90s to win as many titles as they did. And so it was some delayed satisfaction, but maybe had the Bulls won that first um, playoff series with him in 88 or even 89, maybe the Bulls don't go on and win six titles because they had to go, they had to learn how to clear that hurdle. Either way, one of the greatest teams of all time, the Bad Boys, very unappreciated. Um, they kept the Bulls from winning, but uh, and kept Michael Jordan from winning. Great rivalry in the NBA. When you look on the history of great rivalries, Bulls, Pistons, late 80s, early 90s, one of the greatest of all time. So the Bad Boys played a big legacy in the Chicago Bulls and their dominance in the 90s in more ways than one. Not just as a team the Bulls had to get get past to become a champion, but also because one of those players uh, in, uh, in for the Pistons ended up playing an integral role in the second Bulls 3P, and obviously that is Dennis Rodman. And so I want to take a little bit of time to... Uh, for my player profile, my second player profile this week is to talk about Dennis Rodman, um, who he was, the player he was, and uh, how he became a basketball legend, and then how he ended up helping the Bulls um, in their second three-peat. So, so Dennis Rodman uh, had a really, really rough home life. His dad essentially abandoned him. Uh, his mom essentially kicked him out of the house. Uh, when he, it, it was time to go to high school. And so if you know anything about Dennis Rodman, um, certainly was a very flamboyant character in the NBA. Um, did a lot of things that are normal now that weren't in the 90s, like dying hair, tattoos, and whatnot. Uh, probably had some mental health issues needed help with, but that, that was kind of ignored in, in the 90s. A lot of that stems from his very rough home life. And so... I think taking a tangent here, I think it's important to when you when you look at people's actions and and decisions they make in life, a lot of us are products of our environment. And so I think it's good to empathize with people who might be a little bit different and try to live in their shoes and and understand that maybe their home life is different than yours and that plays a role in who they are. 
And it certainly did here, Dennis Rodman. Uh, he actually did not play high school basketball at all. He was cut from his football team and benched on his basketball team. And you might be like, well, how in the heck do you not let the potentially greatest rebounder of all time play high school basketball? Well, the reason for that was because he was 5'9". When he graduated high school, he was not anywhere near the type of player he was now. Um, he ended up being homeless for two years after his mom kicked him out of the house. He ended up growing 10 inches from ages 18 to 20, grew to, to 6'7". And so he ended up, again, just having this massive growth spurt. And he started playing, kind of practicing and playing basketball. Sometimes he'd practice up to 10 hours a day, just getting into shape. And so... A family friend of Rodman's tipped off Cook Community College, which uh, I believe is in Texas. And so he went there and he averaged 17 points and 13 rebounds before one source said he flunked out after a semester. One source said he just left. So there's an assistant basketball coach in at, uh, who is it, Southwestern Oklahoma State or Southeastern Oklahoma State? I I have both written down and I want to make sure I give credit to that school so kind of bear with me as I look it up it is southeastern Oklahoma State and so there's an assistant basketball coach for them that had seen him play for Cook Community College and, and thought to myself and he thought when he saw Dennis at that time that wow that's a division one player that he was going to probably play two years in a community college go D1 and so he kind of remembered him but didn't think he'd have a chance at him because South, because uh, Southeastern was an NAI school, very a small college school. But anyways, um, that assistant basketball coach heard he had left community college, and so he actually drove to his house to try to convince him to come to Southeastern, and he ended up knocking on his bedroom door for two to three hours. Um, he would not, Dennis would not come out of his room, and he finally agreed to come out. And finally agreed to check out Southeastern Oklahoma State. And he did. Ended up going there. Was a three-time All-American. Averaged 25 points. Almost 16 rebounds a game. He holds still the school rebounding record by almost 500 rebounds. Led the NAI in rebounds twice. Um, and led his team to the NAI semis where he had 46 points and 32 rebounds in a game. That's just ridiculous numbers. So he made himself eligible for the 1986 draft, which I kind of already talked about with the Pistons. Um, but the general manager for the Pistons saw Rodman playing at a preseason draft tournament that he just dominated. And so he loved him. And the, the general manager for the Pistons actually wanted Rodman more than any other player in the draft. But he thought he, and he hoped he could get him in the second round because he wanted to draft John Sally in the first round. And so, but after that first preseason draft tournament, uh, Jack McCloskey, the GM, didn't think he, he would get Rodman. But then Rodman ended up struggling at all the other draft camps and his stock dropped. And the Pistons later found out it was due that he was having some allergy issues. And that's why he didn't play so well, which they weren't worried about that. They figured they could work with that. And so it worked out. And... They able to actually draft Dennis Rodman in the second round and still draft John Sally in the first round. And, and you know, the rest is history with, with the Pistons there. Uh, he was extremely popular with the Pistons. He was considered one of the missing links. Uh, 
as I said, um, the Pistons had been in the playoffs, but after they got Rodman, they ended up going to five straight conference finals, three NBA finals, and winning two titles. Uh, and so part of that was because of Rodman helping push the Pistons to that next level. Now, one controversy that happened uh, that I didn't mention when talking about the Pistons was after the, the Celtics beat the Pistons in 1987 in the conference finals, he said that Larry Bird was overrated because he was white, and that's why he got so much publicity. And that didn't go over well, because right now Larry Bird is considered one of the greatest small forwards ever, period. But that actually didn't go over too well. He was mostly a bench player for his first three years, but then he moved into the starting lineup in 89 and 90. He ended up getting back-to-back defensive player of the years. Again, he was a guy that got a lot of rebounds, so averaged 11 rebounds, a block and assist a game, and about nine points a game. Um, his last two years in Detroit, they, they fell from being NBA champions to no playoffs in his last year at the Pistons which was the 92-93 season. He did win his first two rebounding titles that year, which he averaged 18 rebounds in those two seasons. He had the most rebounds in a season, 1,530 since 1972. And no one has come within 250 of those rebounds since. So he's got the highest, still to this day, the highest rebounding season since 1972. The, The one that, and that goes back to Bolt Chamberlain, one of the best rebounders of all time as well. Now, he ended up having a kind of a big moment in 1992-93. He was struggling with the, um, with himself. Chuck Daly, the coach, had left, who was a father figure to him for the Pistons. Had a new coach. Um, obviously, things weren't going with the Pistons. And he actually almost killed himself in, in 1993. He drove to the parking lot of the Pistons arena, had a gun, and he was going to kill himself. And... A couple of things happened. One, he fell asleep before he could kill himself. And he just had this epiphany that he was no longer going to be the person people wanted him to be. He wanted the real Dennis Rodman to come out. He was going to live his life and be happy with himself, with who he was and the decisions he made. And so from that moment on, you started to see the, the again, the flamboyantness, the, the dyed hair, the more technicals, the, the tattoos and whatnot. And that's because he said he decided he wanted to be his true self, which got him in a a lot more trouble. Uh, What's interesting is there's a couple Pistons who believe that that, because he wasn't that way with the Pistons. A lot of, there are some Pistons players who are friends with him that believe that that was all an act to make money. That the true Dennis Rodman was who he was in Detroit, the kind of the quiet, low-key type of a guy, not the dyed hair guy, and that he did all that for attention to make money. And and there are some people that say Dennis admitted that, but again, Dennis says that his true self is who he is now. But but either way, that was a big moment from 93. He ended up requesting a trade, and he ended up being traded to San Antonio. A lot of people, I think, forget that he played for San Antonio the two years, the 94 season and 95 season. Coincidentally, in two years, Jordan was playing baseball. He won two more rebounding titles. And just to show how great he was, uh, San Antonio was a terrible defensive, or excuse me, a terrible rebounding team before Rodman got there. 
and after he left as well. And that's despite having David Robinson on his, on their team. But when Rodman was on the team, they were among the best rebounding teams in the league with him. And that just shows you his impact and how good he was. Um, he averaged 17 rebounds that first year. In 94-95, he had the best, excuse me, the Spurs had the best record in the NBA, actually. And they were favored to go to the conference finals, but they ended up, excuse me, the NBA finals. They ended up losing to the defending champs, Houston Rockets, 4-2. That team had David Robinson, Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson, Benito Negra on it. And Rodman really ripped the Spurs organization. Um, he, he, he really felt that he didn't res- respect Robinson's work ethic or his intensity. I think he kind of felt that San Antonio didn't really care about winning as much as he thought they should have. Uh, and d- despite how good he was as a player, most of his teammates, including Robinson, were happy for him to get out of San Antonio. What, what's really to me interesting is that, again, in 95, the Spurs had the best record. I think if they beat the Rockets, so they go on and play the Magic in the finals that year, it would be interesting if San Antonio would have won the title that year. Because I think if San Antonio wins the title that year, they probably don't trade Dennis Rodman the next year to the Bulls. And that completely changes the Bulls' three-peat. Because Dennis Rodman was such, you know, such a... Uh, um, big part of that three-peat. Now, Robin's presence really helped David Robinson. Again, one of the greatest players of all time in his own right. He had his two highest scoring averages the two years Rodman was there. He actually was um, the scoring champ one of those years as well. So Rodman really helped Robinson out, despite the fact that a lot of the Spurs didn't like him. Uh, But anyways, after 95, he kind of worn out his welcome. He also was... Um, he had an incident where he was upset with how the Spurs were playing and he took his shoes off and, and sat on the, sat down on the score by the scorer's table when a game was almost out of hand, almost pouting because he was upset with the Spurs effort. So that, that, that didn't go over well with him. But anyways, um, despite how good he was, he was considered radioactive and the Spurs were hoping to get rid of him. But they did not have much leverage to get rid of him. Whereas the Spurs had to give up some decent players to get him from the Pistons. Pretty much the Spurs had to dump Rodman on on any team that potentially wanted him. And so uh, the Bulls kind of swooped in there. And the Bulls took a chance on him because their assistant GM, Jim Stack, really pushed Krause to get Rodman. He really felt that Dennis could thrive with the Bulls because you had Phil Jackson, you had Michael Jordan, you had Scottie Pippen, kind of three alpha dogs that Rodman could respect, and those guys could keep him in line. And so they ended up trading Dennis Rodman for Will Perdue, who's a good player for the the Bulls' first three-peat, but he was essentially a backup center. And... The Bulls were really one of the few teams that could absorb his contract. Part of that was by trading Purdue. And one of the few teams that wanted to take a chance on him. Jordan Pippen had to actually sign off on it, which was big because Pippen had a run-in with Rodman in the 1991 conference finals where Rodman shoved him into the crowd and almost 
hurt Pippen really bad. Uh, and actually, Phil Jackson made him apologize to Scottie Pippen. Uh, what what I trying to read my trying to read my notes here. These are I have terrible handwriting. Um, but anyways, uh, the first time that they met, uh, Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause, uh, as they were going to get ready to consummate the trade, yeah, is either Jerry Krause or Phil Jackson, I think it was Jerry Krause asked him, do you want to be a Chicago Bull? <laughs> and Dennis Rodman said, I don't care. <laughs> I just find that crazy. Hey, you got a chance to join maybe one of the best organizations in basketball. He's like, I don't care. But. You know, they signed him and it worked out really well. And I'll get into these, those first, there's 96, 97 Bulls later on in another podcast. But obviously, the, those first two years in Chicago were incredible. He won two more rebounding titles, which made it six in a row for Rodman. He averaged uh, 15 points and 16 rebounds. He's all defense in 1996. And the, the Bulls won two titles. They won 72 games his first year, 69 his second. Uh, Michael Jordan said he was the smartest player he ever played with. George Carl, who coached the Supersonics in 96 and who the Bulls beat in the finals, said that Dennis Rodman single-handedly won them two games in the 96 finals. So, uh, obviously, without Rodman, maybe the Bulls find somebody else and they still win, but Rodman was was a huge reason why a second three-peat happened. So, great trade by Jerry Krause and and great move by Michael and, and Scotty to accept him and work with him and a lot of people give Phil Jackson a lot of credit um for embracing Dennis and allowing him to be who he was and not getting caught up in his antics and building the structure to have Dennis be successful and giving him some latitude. And that's where coaching matters. A lot of people talk about Phil Jackson, and he's won 11 titles as a coach for the Bulls and the Lakers. And they say, well, you know, he had the best players. That's why he won 11 titles. Well, you don't win a title without the best players. I mean, every NBA champion that's won, or at least especially in the last 30, 40 years, had great players, whether it's like the Pistons I talked about, the Lakers with Magic and Kareem, the Celtics with Bird, McHale, and Parrish, the Lakers in the 2000s with Kobe and Shaq, the Rockets with Akeem, again, the, the Spurs with Duncan, Robinson, Ginobili, Parker, the Warriors right now with, with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, uh, Draymond Green, and before that, even Kevin Durant. You have every team that wins as great players, but... Coaching matters, and, I, and the coaches in San Antonio couldn't figure out how to utilize Dennis Rodman, and Phil Jackson did, and that paid off really well. To me, I think Dennis Rodman, he's definitely in the conversation for greatest defensive player of all time. I would make the argument that he is the greatest defensive player of all time. I think the only other person really in that conversation is probably Bill Russell, for the Celtics won 11 titles. And if you believe Bill Russell is the greatest defensive player of all time, I have no problem with you thinking that. Rodman is really smart. He watched film, which was very rare back then. He watched people shoot. Different players shoot, watched the spin of the ball, and memorized uh, where someone's shot would go and how it would kick off different parts of the rim, which was incredible. There's a story of Isaiah Thomas where Dennis Rodman got out of a layup line or a shot line before a game and was just under the basket. Isaiah thought 
that dinosaur's being lazy and not shooting and not warming up. And Isaiah went over to him and said, hey, you're part of this team. You have to go in the layup line. And Dennis says, oh, I'm watching the shots. This is what your shot does, how it spins. This is how Bill Ambeer's shot spins, etc." Very, very rare for people to do, probably even now as well. Um, but he, so he, he was very physically gifted, but mentally was on point. He could, he's a rare guy. He could defend every position. So when they played the Lakers on when he was on the Pistons, he could go down and guard Kareem and block him and switch to, to guard Magic, a point guard. Um, when the Bulls played the Magic in the 96 conference finals, he could drop down and guard Shaq and switch and guard Penny Hardaway, who was one of the great guards at that time. He could guard anybody. He was the one that neutralized Karl Malone with the Jazz when, when they played the Jazz. Um, he could do everything. Uh, in, in 14, he played 14 seasons. In his first 12 seasons, he played for three teams, the Pistons, Spurs, and, and Bulls, went to nine conference finals. Nine conference finals. When he left Detroit, they dropped and went from a championship team to a first-round playoff team. San Antonio, they were a solid franchise that made the playoffs a lot. But with him... They went to the conference finals. And actually, the year after that, I think 96, 97, the Spurs would actually be one of the, had the, one of the worst records in the league. Part of that is because Robinson got hurt. But they wouldn't win until San Antonio got Tim Duncan. The Bulls were terrible after Rodman left. Of course, part of that was to the complete teardown but, of, of the Bulls. But every team he joined... I know it wasn't just him, but he took him to the next level, made him a great defensive team, and when they left, the teams were never the same. Now, there's a stat that John Hollinger made up, who's a, a stat guy. You can look him up. He made a stat called rebound rate to, and, and another one called change in team rebounding to try to measure the great rebounders of all time. And he has Dennis Rodman as number one. Uh, again, he's a two-time defensive player of the year, seven-time all-defensive first team. He led the NBA in rebounding seven straight seasons. No one else has done more than five. Uh, again, the, the Pistons had the 15th best D before he got there. He was, They were top five when he was there. He has the number one all-time rebounding per 100 possession rate, number one all-time rebounding percentage rate. He's actually seven of the top 10 rebounding rate seasons. And what's crazy is he played in an era that was slower which meant there were less shots up so in the current modern era there's an opportunity for about 45 rebounds a game some two of the other great rebounders of all time is Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell they played in an era there are 50 to 70 potential rebounds a game more shots Dennis Rodman played in an era there are only about 41 rebounds a game to get so Robin was able to get more rebounds and a higher and a higher percentage of rebounds, despite the fact he played in an era where he had the less opportunity to get rebounds. But again, rebounding is part of it. I think he's the greatest rebounder of all time, and because of his versatility, he could guard anybody. I personally think he's the greatest defensive player of all time, and I think yes, he's had some crazy antics. And what I really encourage you to do is forget the antics. Look at what he did as a player. He was really good. Won five titles 
an integral part of two different great teams, the Pistons and the Chicago Bulls. Now, after 98, when he won his third title with the Bulls, he finished his last two years with the LA Lakers and the Dallas Mavericks. Kind of two nondescript years, and then he rode off into the sunset. But Dennis Rodman, in my opinion, the greatest defensive player of all time. If I had to pick a team, a starting lineup team, to play any game with my life dependent on it, I want him in the starting five. I do, for his defense. Now, is he one of the five greatest players of all time? No, I don't think so. But I think he's the greatest defensive player of all time. I want him starting, complimenting some other scorers on my team. Now, Dennis Rodman was the guy that Phil Jackson said really felt held the team together during Scotty's injury. And we talked about in the last episode that the Bulls started 12-9. and nine, And then after that, they went 12-2. and two. Um, until Scotty returned. And so they had a 24-11 record. And so they went from like 6th, 7th, 8th place in the East to the best record in the East. And and they would, for the most part, stay in first place the rest of the year. They still had to fight off Indiana. Uh, but Dennis Rodman is the guy that Jordan and Phil Jackson say held that team together. You know, through his first 21 games when the Bulls struggled, he averaged uh, 13 rebounds a game and and five points a game. In those next 14 games, he averaged almost 19 rebounds a game and seven points a game. Uh, Jordan also upped his game, went from averaging 27 points to 31 points. Ron Harper rose his game up, who I profiled earlier, and uh, eight to 12 point, went from eight points to 12 points on average. But Dennis Rodman was, was a big reason for that. And so that by the time Scottie Pippen returned, the Bulls were in first place. Pretty incredible from when they started the season. Uh, you know, in, in the document, he talks about Scottie's decision to return. He said he would never play for the Bulls again. He ended up coming back because he wanted to trade, and he said that he knew the Bulls were never going to trade him. Jerry Krause was never going to do that. And he knew that he really had no choice but to play out his contract this year. And probably deep down inside, he knew and Phil Jackson had been pushing this. Hey, you come back, have a great year. You'll get your your, your big-time contract. So by the time, about almost halfway through the season, the Bulls are back in first place. Scotty's back. And the Bulls are ready now to roll, try to roll through the second half of the season and build towards the playoffs. So again, at this point, I said the Bulls are in first place. The Indiana Pacers are the surprise team with Coach Larry Bird, and they're tied with the Miami Heat um, for second place behind the Bulls at 22-11 and 11 in the East. Now in the West, the Seattle Supersonics have the best record in the NBA, 29-6 and six at that point, on pace for 68 wins. Again, they had traded one of their best players, Sean Kemp, for Vin Baker. That decision's working out really well. Kobe Shaq Lakers at the beginning, they're 27-8. and eight. And then Utah, San Antonio, and Phoenix, I'll have 22 wins. So those are kind of the teams at this point, almost halfway through the year, that are kind of the top teams in the league right now. And and that's kind of where I think I'm going to leave this podcast. So the Chicago Bulls, again, in, in the late 80s, rode prime Michael Jordan to go from a first-round playoff loser to the conference finals. 
They dispatched some great Cavaliers teams in the 80s and then got put up against the bad boy Pistons. And and right now, as we're flashing back, the Bulls have lost multiple conference finals in a row to the Pistons, and they're heading into the 1991 season trying to finally knock them off and win their first title. Flashing forward to the current 97-98 last dance season, Dennis Rodman helped rally the Bulls. Uh to help get them turned around. They are now in first place. And Scottie Pippen is back. And the Bulls are, are looking as tough as they've looked all year. As they try to uh, not only win the division. Get back in the playoffs of the number one seed. But win their uh, uh, sixth championship in their last eight years. Will they do it? <laughs> I think you guys obviously know what happens there. But um, I'll end this episode of Doc Tell Me More. A little bit longer one. But... One I enjoy doing. Our next episode, we'll look at um, that Bulls beginning of their first three-peat, how that worked, uh, other important aspects of those three-peat teams. And also, I'm going to profile some of the great teams that they ended up beating and some of the teams that never got to win titles because MJ and the Bulls knocked them off. And then we're going to look at, again, the Bulls as they, um, it's in the second half, of the regular season as I get ready for the playoffs. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Doc Tell Me More. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, we'll be back in another three to four weeks to drop another podcast. So until then, thanks for listening and have a great day.